You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in on this 30th day of November. We're almost to the end of the year. And um, as we go into this, and this, by the way, is remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we have Philip on and uh, Philip Farsberg. And uh, Philip's going to be talking about Desert Shield and Desert Storm in the weeks to come because we, I feel like we just can't forget any veteran or any battle in which uh, we lost American lives, and uh, we certainly did in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So with that being said, as we've started this routine of all of David's picks and, and the shows that I do, <clears throat> that we pause for just a minute of silence to think about our veterans, and let's just do it. We'll specialize a little bit, and we'll do it particularly thinking of our veterans that have returned to us from Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, we'll be back with our normal cadence call right after a moment of silence. And we thank all of our veterans for the sacrifices that they made and also their families and the sacrifices that the families, uh, thank you, did um, when uh, their spouses were deployed. And that might be a husband or a wife or whoever it might be. But we're delighted to have Philip on today. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. It's very nice to talk to you again, David. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, we, uh, as Rick White and I were talking yesterday, we we really do appreciate and love all veterans and our first responders. I, I don't ever want to forget the first responders that take care of us from coast to coast and are there just a phone call away when we need them. And that's the way it should be, and no one should try and take that away. And getting a bit political, uh, I think the craziest thing I've ever heard of is defunding the police. Uh, do one you know? Do they want to use uh, life support and not put blood circulating through it or something? I just you know I can't imagine somebody wanting to do that but we're here to talk about desert shield and desert storm and um i don't know if um if you uh listen to uh our thanksgiving day program uh but we and and then the thanksgiving giving day program that pete mecca did um on his show a veteran story but on on the show that i did on thanksgiving day we talked about something that I, I've always found it very interesting, and I'll hit you with this, Phil, that uh, we talked about Thanksgiving and uh, military turkeys. And, you know, the first thought is not the meat turkey, but other kinds of turkeys. But no, I, I, we actually talked about the eating kind of turkey. And where when you were between deserts, shield and desert storm um were you there during any holidays uh well i was there for thanksgiving and uh christmas and my 31st birthday and uh yeah i came home on easter sunday ah Uh, i don't i don't know if I, I, I'll have to look it up. I'm not sure we celebrate your birthday nationally, but we may. I, I may be mistaken. We may have a, a Philip Day that I, I just wasn't aware of or something. <laughs> no, I don't think it's actually a federal holiday. But, okay, let, let me ask this, and this is what we talked about uh, uh, the other day, was that I, I have to salute the military for... 
I don't know any other way to describe it, but they try their best on a holiday to and it and it's the uh, cooks, it's the the mess hall that really does it that they try to give us something of home like Thanksgiving and Christmas and and having the turkey and the mashed potatoes and the sometimes the uh, uh, sweet potato casserole or the green bean casserole or whatever. But I've always bowed my head and saluted as well the the cooks and the and the mess room folks that try to put a smile on our face and a memory on our stomach. And uh, like the old saying goes, the army marches on its stomach. Well, you know the the mess hall group seems to go by that and want to uh, do something special. Was that your uh, was that it, the way it was in Desert Chill and Desert Storm? Oh, yeah. You know, we, we brought our cooks, and uh, they uh, we normally ate a, uh, an MRE uh, at, uh, at our lunchtime. And uh, the, the, king was, uh, the king of Saudi Arabia was building a, a, an airport, and he had a mess hall for his laborers. And he let us eat there uh, for our evening meal. So the cooks kind of had a break there, but uh, the, our cooks always made us breakfast, which was fantastic. It was a long time, you know, we were wondering, they said, you know, well, you're not going to be able to have ham or bacon or sausage in uh, Saudi Arabia because of the, you know, the religious culture there. But, uh, no, eventually we, we had eggs to order, bacon and ham and sausage and fried potatoes grits and all the things that American soldiers need. <laughs> it was wonderful. Our cooks were great. And because they didn't have the other meals to make, they were available for a lot more other duties. Oh, wow. Interesting. What other duties did they perform? Well, you know, I mean, when when you set up, uh, you know, your operating base there, you, you've got all the life support things or you mm-hmm. know, trash to be hauled off. There's guard duty to do. There's uh, uh, you know any number of things. Uh, just we had uh, we had these little portable showers we had with that had little uh, water heaters on top, and uh, we, they were made. We made our showers out of plywood, but this uh, this uh, heater thing just uh, anyway it needed to be filled up with water. Huh. You know, yeah, uh, every day, so the guys could take showers and. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of chores, I'm telling you. Well, you know, uh, I'm sure that um, even the uh, the cooks were reinformed that if you're in the Army, the first MOS you have and the last one you have is light arms infantry. You will carry a weapon. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, we weren't there to fool around. And if uh, if you uh, have to uh, perform guard duty, well, you have to you have to do your guard duty. Yeah. So did uh, did you run into any of the uh, contract uh, people, particularly in the mess hall? Um, <clears throat> well, we didn't we didn't have contractors. Uh, uh, you know the the mess hall that was operated by the king and his people, then that was, uh, well, of course, nobody in, no no local Saudis do anything in Saudi Arabia, so it was all, um, you know. Hired labor? Hired labor, mostly to come in from Pakistan or uh, or Palestine or uh, uh, India, Philippines, you know, a lot of, a lot of workers, just... Just laborers, you know, and they, they also had, you know, staff in the mess hall. I know we had curry at every meal. It, I mean, you didn't have to eat it, but it was available at every Ugh. meal. Curry, rice, soup, and soft ice cream huh. was at every meal in the mess hall. Well, I would go for the soft ice cream anyway. The curry, I'd let go. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, the thing I, I wanted the most was... Uh, some real American ketchup. Oh yeah, their their version of we we always had French fries. Every meal there were French fries, but their ketchup 
just left something to be desired instead of what we're used to. It was more like a jelly almost. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if you listened to the show the other day, but uh, I can't remember who it was, but we were kidding about the uh, – he he had to uh, pull point one time in uh, uh, oh it was in, in Vietnam obviously and uh, he was talking about uh, he was pulling point with an M seventy nine grenade launcher and uh, you know he had the uh, shotgun shell in it as opposed to the uh, grenade or part of the time he did but we were talking about that and I love the M seventy nine I love firing it I just it had the coolest sound. Boom. And do you remember what that was uh, back in the States at that time? That was a Hunt television commercial where they put the tomato on top of a jar and sucked it down. And and the sound that was made was, you know, I loved it. I loved it. Anyway, the M79 is is quite a weapon. Did you all use the M79 in... uh, uh, you know, they have used the M79 since the Vietnam days. They they went to the M203, which is basically a, a rig that hooks up on the bottom of, a, of an M16 and makes it dual purpose. You still have your rifle barrel on top and takes a magazine, but on the bottom you have a... Uh, uh, you, you have a grenade launcher uh, tube. So similar thing. It looks kind of like an over and under. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that under is quite a surprise. That, that, that under is quite a surprise, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Won't shoot as far, but makes a bigger bang at the other end. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah. But the 203 was nice. It had, uh, I mean, the, the M79, I remember that. It looked like an oversized shotgun, single yeah. barrel crack open shotgun but uh yeah and it was uh you know we uh we you know i'll tell you a story about the 203 rounds we didn't fire any but any the whole time we were there but uh one day the uh uh the armorer came to me and he said uh sir we got a bad problem i said what's that he said uh well the headquarters armor is short one two oh three high explosive round and uh the battalion commander says we're not going back to the States until oh, that's shit. accounted for. And uh I said, Okay, is that what you need? He said, Yep. And uh so I said, uh <clears throat> go get me a truck. So we come back with a truck and uh he said, Where are we going? I said Go over, go over the 101st. I went to the 101st and, uh, we got over there where they were and they were set up in the, in the parking garage of the airport. They had already been forward and they were back and we were getting ready to, to leave out of there. And, uh, so <clears throat> I asked somebody, where's the, well, I'm not going to say the battalion, but, uh, and then, uh, we found the battalion, and I said, I need uh, to find Lieutenant so-and-so. Well, uh, I got to him, and I said, hey, my brother was your battalion surgeon until just a couple of days before you left. And, you know, he he got sent to Fort Sam, and uh, he was kind of put out that he missed the war. But he told me that this uh, uh, Medical Service Corps officer was their platoon leader so I went and looked him up and I said uh, you know my brother's Pete and uh, he said okay I said listen we need uh, we need one 203 round and he said okay so he called over the, the ammunition platoon leader and he said can you get us a 203 round he said sure well they had an amnesty box so you come back from, you know, the front where all the fighting was going on with the, with the 101st. You come back from there and you find it somewhere in your gear or whatever you've got, you know, ammunition or something you want to get rid of, hand grenades or whatever. You just drop it in this amnesty box. <laughs> so he, he went over to the amnesty box. He pulled out a 203 round. He handed it to me. 
And I, I took it, I wiped all my fingerprints off it with a handkerchief, and I handed it to the armor. And he said, what's this for, sir? And I said, what's what for? I don't see nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and we left on time. Congratulations. <laughs> it's, I wasn't going to let one loose 203 round, you know, stop me. It, it's amazing what can be lost and what can be found, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, I guarantee you that over in the 101st, they they weren't demanding accountability for every single 203 round that had been issued. <laughs> I bet not. That's sort of like... Uh, <clears throat> I know a DI that's still looking for his Yogi the Bear hat. <laughs> I'm sure that's a good story. <laughs> I I won't say exactly what happened to it, but uh, he put me up against a wall and I'll squeal like a pig. <laughs> but well. that was, you know, that's what people, in my opinion, don't understand is that if you're called up, no matter what you are, what your MOS is, or anything else, it's 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 serious business. But yeah. with that being said, there's always somebody bringing a lighter side to it, or or somebody, you know, just it's not all it's not all waiting for the first shot to be fired. It's, 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 and, and again, I think the military, if nothing else, proves the old cliche. It's not what you know, it's who you know, and how high ranking they are. And I was taught early on to always have a clipboard with paper on it, and no matter who stopped you, whatever rank he was, that clipboard belonged to somebody that was just a bit higher than him. Well, you know, I had a tourist. A couple of tours, actually, in the Pentagon, and you know, one of our mottos was "Walk fast, carry a clipboard, and look nervous, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no one will stop you." Or the other, the other technique was always walk around with two ceramic mugs, you know, one one with two stars on it, and another one with three stars on it, <laughs> you know, and uh, no one will ever stop you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ah, well, it's, but it's, you know, that's, that's what we, we push today and, and we've been pushing is that in a lot of folks' minds, if they go back to uh, Vietnam or if they go back to uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, they think of the military and particularly the army as, oh my God, it's, it's all you're doing there is being shot at. Well, yes and no. It's, it's not all being out in the field or being in the jungle or whatever the case circumstance might be. And for a young person that's undecided in what they're doing, um, a couple of things, and I'll go into more detail in a second, but it's, it's a wonderful occupation if you're just coming out of high school or just graduating from college and haven't made up your mind what you want to do. Whatever branch it is, I can assure you that you can find what you want to do in life, and it will not only help you organize, but it will also give you invaluable training that you won't get anyplace else, and it will set you up for a career that you can't imagine. With that being said, if I don't say this, Colonel White will come after me, and, and I, that could be bad, um, but... The Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame has tuitions, and uh, they're always accepting applicants for college tuitions that, uh, you know, you, you, the one first requirement has to be that you've been in, uh, junior ROTC and, uh, you know, and then you're going to sign to go into uh, college ROTC. So, but keep in mind that the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame does present tuitions every year or scholarships, I should say, not tuitions, but scholarships. Yeah. And, uh, they have, um, it's quite a nice scholarship as a matter of fact. And, uh, 
it's not your old tuition. It's just a scholarship. But uh, you need to apply to the Georgia Military Hall of Fame, particularly if you've been in junior ROTC and want to go that you know you want to make uh, the military a career and plan on going into uh, college ROTC. And, uh, you know, I try my best to screw things up, don't I? And unfortunately, a lot of times I succeed, and that's never the idea. But anyway, I know uh, Rick would be after me if I didn't say that. And want to remind everybody that the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame is a place you have to visit and take your own Kleenex. As you're walking through and reading what guys have done, and our, uh, our guest today is in the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, correct? Uh, no, actually, oh. I have not been nominated. Oh, that. I thought you had. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you will be. <laughs> <laughs> I got a feeling that uh, it's coming pretty soon. Uh, and uh, and Colonel White is uh, is very dedicated to that cause, and uh, I'm I'm very glad that he is. Oh, he is. He is a tremendous gentleman, and. Uh, does one heck of a job as the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And he's quite active, too, in the uh, uh, Johns Creek Veterans Association. And uh, that's where we have, that's where they have the uh, Vietnam Healing Wall. That was the uh, replica that traveled the United States, the replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C., that traveled all over the United States. And, uh, you know, Georgia's just getting a, a reputation, a good reputation, for honoring our veterans. And I love it. I think it's the greatest thing a state can do is honor their veterans as well as, at the same time, they're really honoring all veterans. And... Uh, I'd like to take this second to thank you for your service in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, if you were to peg a difference, what would you say was besides desert as opposed to jungle? But uh, what other do you think there was a any big difference in in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm as as we went into uh, the Middle East? Well, uh, of course, it was probably the first time since uh, North Africa that U.S. forces, you know, had any kind of dedicated combat in that sort of environment. Um, but uh, now, uh, well, you, I guess you're asking me what was unique about it or fighting there? Or? Yeah, did you did you find something um, particularly, particularly different in the Middle East than... Um, any place else that you uh, you trained or you, that you were involved in? Well, I found you know, of course, it being in Saudi Arabia, I don't. I've probably met more Pakistanis and Filipinos in in Saudi Arabia than I met Saudis. Um, they were, uh, you know, they're they're sort of off to themselves, and you know, they sort of patriarchal, and you know, you're, you're not going to ever talk to their women. Um, they're, you know they're all covered up in black, and and the men walk around in their white, what we used to call man dresses. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, and you know, I, I really couldn't understand how you could support a population there. Um, nothing seemed to they they would have from time to time these circular irrigation uh, farms. That you know, flying around, you see a big, in the middle of all that sand and dust, you'd see a, a big green circle and stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, they had this, you know, kind of circular uh, irrigation thing where the irrigation pivots around this central axis and uh, and waters. And you know, if you put water and fertilizer on stuff, they certainly have enough sunshine there. <laughs> you can grow things, and I guess they did, but I just, you know, I mean, if I were there, if I had lived there, I, my first thought would be to leave. <laughs> but, you know, maybe you don't. You know, they say the, the Eskimos never came south from the Arctic because they thought the rest of the continent was colder. <laughs> <laughs> I 
you know, maybe if that of all you know is Saudi Arabia, you, I guess you stay there. But um, yeah, it's uh, I, you know one thing about about combat there that was unique in Desert Storm. We hadn't had this. Oh, I guess maybe not since uh, since Korea, where you know you're just you're just going up you know one solid line there's no it's not insurgencies it's not kicking down doors you know it's moving it's almost like fighting on a blackboard you know you just the the line just moves up contiguously and you just roll up the enemy and uh, of course the guys fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan these days they don't uh, they have that kind of thing um but it was it, it was a pl- uh, an opportunity for all of our systems to work together as they had been envisioned to work. Um, you know, when when you start getting into nation building and uh, you know having insurgencies and stuff, uh, that's a lot more messy. Ours is our our fight was a lot cleaner because you're able to just roll up the way an army does. You know, just just take all the ground and you know yeah you were a mohawk pilot correct i was yes sir so and that that crossed with uh being an intel officer yes i was trained in signal intelligence and also some imagery intelligence as well um and a lot of the troops that, that belonged to me were were uh intelligence troops as well and, you know, remember, it's intelligence. It's not intelligent, right? <laughs> it means it means they work in gathering and processing information. So it doesn't, doesn't make them any smarter than any other uh, job specialty out there. Oh but, you know, one thing that was unique, I don't know about unique, but it was one thing that was characteristic about Desert Storm uh, was the fact that we... Uh, they had these burn pits, and they burned oh, yeah. a lot of stuff. I think human waste and mm-hmm. a lot of other kind of waste. And uh, if I may make a plug at this time, David, I would like to encourage anyone who served in any of the areas in the Middle East up until now uh, that were subject to uh, exposure to the smoke from these burn pits to go on the VA website va.gov and uh, just search for uh, burn pit registry and put and log yourself in as uh, someone who uh, who was subject to that uh, burn pit um, smoke uh, the, the VA has has a, a database they're building of folks and uh, you know it took decades for them to uh, determine that Agent Orange was uh, the culprit for a lot of uh, diseases, and so once once they had that, then that's sort of like a class action. If you if you had served in Vietnam or any of these areas where Agent Orange was regularly used, they presumed that if you had any of these several illnesses that they were related to your service. And it's, it's a very important thing. It's an important thing for all the vets so that you can turn your anecdotal information into statistical information and we can, we can help these vets get the, uh, the help that, uh, that they deserve. Yes, sir. I, I understand it. You know, it took a while to, uh, just like you said with Agent Orange, uh, the the burn pits uh, took a while to uh, be recognized as uh, as bad, if not worse, than, than uh, Agent Orange. Yeah, and, and you know we had uh, we also had. Um, I still don't know what the inoculation was they gave me. They told me I, they couldn't tell me what it was because it was classified. <laughs> um, but it's going in your body. Yeah, and there was, uh, you know, what, what can you do? You're out in the middle of the desert, and they tell you to court-martial you if you don't take it, so so you take it. 
and um, but then there's also the the smoke from the uh, the oil wells that Saddam and his troops lit on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, it came well down to the airfield where we were in Damam. Um, there were days when it was there was no clouds in the sky, but you're still on the instruments trying to land because of the oil smoke. Wow. You know, these are things that, um, well, one, I didn't know that. I thought they had pretty well, I I thought Red Adair had gotten them all out, uh, but uh, I didn't. He did, he did eventually, but they burned for uh, probably a month before he put them out. There's only two companies, I think, Boots and Coots and Red Adair that, that put out those fires, and they both showed up, and the Amir of Kuwait, you know, they, they told him it's a million dollars a minute, and he said, I'm not going to pay it. So he got on their plane and flew back to Houston, and then he called him back and said, yeah, I'll pay it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never heard that story either, but, uh, you know, talking about a legend, Red Adair in Texas is, you know, has been a hero as long as I can remember. And uh, done things that were impossible with oil fires, and and uh, I, I just you know I don't know the gentleman, but uh, and I hope I never meet him in the situation of needing him. But uh, I just assume keep my oil flowing and not burning. But with yeah, that being if you said, got a skill like that nobody else has. Huh? Oh you yeah, know, you can charge top dollar. I don't know. They someone told us that you know they had asked for a million dollars a minute to do the work, and they said no. And you know, I mean, I don't know how you know how long it's going to take, but uh, you know, once you set off the explosions that blow out the fire, well, you know, time's up, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I tell you what, they weren't getting weren't getting a nickel's worth out of that oil before then so uh, you know and it's like uh this is really going off subject but it's one of those the it's a thing that's not being mentioned on any of the news it, the only service that's mentioning it even is america's web radio and that's because we do a show called let's talk venezuelan and uh venezuelan has an oil spill that's been going on now for months yeah. And uh, it's uh, one of their one of their pipelines, and it's ruining the Caribbean because they haven't put a stop to it, and uh, you know nobody's talking about it. But we do on our Let's Talk Venezuelan show. So with that, um, how long were you in? Uh, how long did Desert Shield last before we started up Desert Storm? Well, let's see. I think uh, we. We called it, I, I arrived in country on the uh, 23rd of September, 1990, and it was Desert Shield, and we didn't know anything else until, uh, uh, I think it was about the midnight between the 16th and the 17th of January of 1991 that uh, it suddenly became Desert Storm. When we first started the air war. Hmm. So that was really the kickoff of uh, when the air when they brought in the the big boys. Yeah, uh, the air war kind of was the demarcation of where it had become Desert Storm suddenly. Huh. Do you and I? I ask a lot of folks this. Uh, if the government called, would you sign up again? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I swore my oath uh, to our nation, and uh, so I'm not going to go back on it. Uh, I, when I retired from the army, um, it was uh, in uh, <clears throat> 2011. And I, you know, they told me, you will be in the retired reserve until age 60. 
and uh, on age 60, um, they're not calling you up anymore. But, you know, my experience is they can change things at any time. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on how, how desperate they get. But if they do, if they do call, I'll come. I'll, you know, I'm here. You know, I serve our nation. I asked you uh, before, and I'd, I had given you plenty of warning, and and you didn't make it. But I don't know if you remember that question or not that I said I wouldn't ask hardball questions, but uh, you couldn't answer me. And that was, can you, in a group of six, can you name one vet that can only tell one story? <laughs> uh not without biting his lip, I guess. <laughs> no, I, and and this is something I bring this up and kid about it, but I, vet stories are fantastic, and every vet in the country that listens to the show or or has family that listens to the show or whatever the circumstance, any vet that has grandkids, he ought to pull them up, get them on his lap or on her lap, and. Um, Tell them about their experience of being a vet and what they went through in combat, or in not sometimes not even in combat. But and I and I say this: men are women because so many times women are overlooked. Everybody thinks a vet can only be a, a man, but that's so untrue. And we not only salute the veterans, but we also salute their families that stood alone while their husbands or wives were deployed and uh but any vet should talk to their grandkids and tell them what it's like and what they did and and sometimes how they did it and the friends that they made that uh they still keep in touch with or you know the the i remember my drill sergeant i remember this i remember that and let the let the family know about it. You're you're cheating your family if if you don't talk about it. You know, in my opinion. Yeah, I uh, I can recall my grandfather who served in World War One in wow. infantry, uh, telling me, and he you know he wouldn't have talked to me about his time in the army unless I asked him. And he, he died when I was 10 years old, but I still remember the stories he told me. And he never said one negative thing about his entire time in the Army. You know, that was trench warfare and poison gas. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, as time goes on, it you know, it's the good things that you remember, not so much difficult or horrible things. And... Sometimes some of them, uh, some of the stories have to be filtered just a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure my grandfather, you know, left out some of the worst parts. But it's still, you know, and, and we totally support and push that if if somebody's looking for it or looking for an opportunity, that uh, that's it. Uh we're gonna take a quick break, Phil, if you don't mind, and uh, we'll uh, we'll come back and talk more about your experience and uh, some of the. Maybe I'll give you a minute to think about this. Some of the characters, I, and I've never really asked this before. Uh, some of the characters that you may have met while you were in the service, somebody that was just totally. Um, off the wall. We'll be back in just a minute. And want to remind everybody that uh, we've got great places that you can go and and look at what our heroes have done over the years. That's one is the is the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It's downtown in the Floyd Building, right across the street from the state capitol. And like I said, keep in mind that they do give scholarships. And if you're looking to go into uh, college and go into ROTC and you've been in junior ROTC, then you really need to look into the scholarship. And uh, we also want to remind everybody that we've got the 
Johns Creek Healing Wall, which uh, or the wall that heals, depending on how you want to say it, uh, that is in Johns Creek Newtown Park, and it's the healing wall that traveled. It was a replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington D.C. that traveled all over the country, helping people touch and find friends and loved ones that were lost in Vietnam. We'll be right back after this. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, so all of you veterans of Desert Storm and Desert Shield, this is your show. And all we ask is that you tell your buddies or your friends or your relatives that you have a whole show dedicated to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we're very fortunate to have our host on, Mr. Philip Forsberg. And... uh Philip was there. Were you there from almost the get-go, Phil? There were, uh, you know, some of the lighter units from the uh, 18th Airborne Corps were there well ahead of us uh, sometime in August. But uh, we, uh, I arrived on the 23rd of September, and it was... Uh, so so it, did my not, oldest son. Uh, it's not <laughs> as if it, we were dragging our feet. We had a lot of stuff to get ready. Uh, from the time we got our alert until the time we left, we didn't have a single day off, and uh, we were working from dawn, well, before dawn until, you know, late into the night, every night, um, just <clears throat> um, painting vehicles and, uh, you know, getting inoculations and going through... Uh, deadly force briefings and rules of engagement briefings and uh, everything. Everything you need. Sit down, you know, get your will in order. Um, everything. Did you, how do you feel about the rules of engagement? Well, you know, the rules of engagement are, are, are very important because you are going to somebody else's country and you're going to find yourself in a position where you're going to um, actually, you know, be using deadly force and, and killing people. And when you do that, um, you know, those those countries that you're in, they have laws, you know, and, and most of their laws are against things like murder, you know, or, or you know, homicide. And, uh, you know, if you're in the armed forces, you're prosecuting an armed conflict, you may find yourself in a position where your job is to go out and find somebody who hasn't done anything to you and, and kill them. And so, um, that, you know, so essentially, what, what are you going to do to protect your soldiers and, uh, you're going to, you know, make sure that they're doing everything according to the laws of land warfare. And when you, and when they do, then, you know, then they have protections. If they go outside of that, as we've seen in different, uh, scenarios that have presented themselves, then, then they're operating outside. And, and people need to know they need, the, the troops need to be forewarned. You know, you're not, going into a, uh, a free fire zone where there's no rules. There are rules and there are consequences if you don't follow those rules. So uh, those deadly force and rules of engagement briefings are extraordinarily important. Uh, you know, if you want to stay out of jail. Uh, as far as a, my or let me let me ask, I'll put in a question. Who should make up the rules of engagement? Well, uh, you know, the uh, it's basically it's the nation that's going in, you know, to do the the fighting, 
right? They they have accepted rules, and uh, so it, it's really a, a national policy thing. It has to come down, you know, from the highest levels of the government saying what what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, because the, the government's what's going to stand behind you, or conversely, the government may be the ones handing you over to some other authority if you if you go outside of those rules. And that's why. That's why you really can't have mercenaries doing this. You have to have somebody that has the protection of the of the government and the sanction of the government to do what they're doing. So, uh, you know that you can look at these rules and say, you know, you're you're tying folks' hands. Well, on the other hand, what you, what you're really doing is you're protecting. The, the soldiers instead of uh, you know letting them be subject to some other uh, jurisdiction may I ask a personal question I suppose <laughs> yeah well you can always say you know I'd prefer not answering but what with your time in country what's the one thing you think you'll never forget um you know the the, the people. Um, the uh, I, you know, I made some wonderful friendships, and uh, you know it's uh, it's like being on a you know on a winning major league team or something. You know, just uh, just to, to uh, be moving toward a purpose with great. Uh, Resolve and to actually see the fruits of what you've done. Um, and I, one thing I won't ever forget is the uh, the Kuwaiti the Kuwaitis we had with us that were doing the uh, uh, translation for us. Um, because at one point, you know, once Kuwait had been liberated, uh, we turned those guys loose to go home, and they were hugging us. And, you know, we had those funny-looking hats, and these guys uh, signed our hats in uh, in Arabic, um, you know, thanking us. Um, I still have a little thing we got from the, from the Kuwait government. They uh, put a little uh, insert in our whatever newspaper we got from... Maybe it was Stars and Stripes or something. But they just basically put this insert in there thanking us, uh, you know, from the people of Kuwait. But, you know, they were going back into a place where, you know, uh, Iraqi soldiers had come in, killed their fathers, and, and, you know, brutalized their mothers and their sisters. And um, they were extraordinarily thankful to us uh, for giving them their country back. So that, that's one thing I tell you I'll never forget. You know, uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but did we, in your opinion, did we respond as fast as we could or should we have responded faster? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't do national policy. That's that's for people a lot higher up than just soldiers. Um, I couldn't. I really couldn't second guess uh, the way uh, the sequence of events that we have. You know, some of the greatest heroes, to my mind, uh, were the planners who had put everything in, in place for success there. There's so many opportunities for failure in the military operation at that level. is so messy. But, uh, you know, we had everything we needed for success. And uh, in the, the sequence of events, you know, we put almost a half a million troops there. And, uh, you know, the, the Iraqis just stood across the border and let us build up. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they really 
I, I don't know if they could have gone on the offensive. If they had, if they had rolled earlier, when it was nothing but the 82nd Airborne Division in there, they, they could have taken Riyadh um, and essentially the whole country. But uh, instead, they let us uh, build up. I don't know. It's almost if if they had taken the whole peninsula. I don't know if they had the forces to spread out to do that, but you know, imagine if uh, if, if Hitler had only taken half of France and and left the rest for us to to build up our forces on. You know, in other words, didn't have Fortress Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, things would have been would have saved an awful lot of lives that were spent at Normandy, but the uh, I. You know, just watching the build up there, I couldn't really couldn't believe. You know, they were letting us do all this stuff without any, you know, action against us. Well, you know, and in my opinion, and obviously I wasn't there, but uh, in my opinion, as I was watching it on TV and following it, and for following the, the progression, it was like it was to me very obvious that. Saddam Hussein was a bluster and um, was not was not a military person. And he to go up against Norman Schwarzkopf and think he was going to win anything, he showed us how big a fool he was, in my opinion. And um, no matter how much advice he got from his military, and you know, he was making the mistake of being a narcissist and doing it his way. And uh, his way lost it. Yeah, he uh, he made some some uh, miscalculations there. Um, and uh, you know, I I can't tell. Uh, you know, as far as how how it began, it was uh, you know it was kind of textbook. How it ended, my my view on things is that uh, the. Uh, all the folks that were George H.W. Bush's detractors had criticized him, saying he was getting us involved in a war because he wanted to take over Iraq. And uh, they painted him into a, a corner where he said, all I'm trying to do is get him out of Kuwait. But so when they agreed to pull everything out of Kuwait, um, they basically had to leave. If they hadn't held his feet to the fire on that, you know, we could have, we could have actually liberated um, Iraq. Would have been a lot messier, you know. I mean, you you can push you can push an army out of somebody else's country, but once you get into their country, you really have to destroy them in detail. And how do you do that without you know messing up the uh, innocent civilian population? So it's a difficult thing. But you know, I was just a—I was just a captain, very small piece on the chessboard, just doing what I was instructed to do the best way I knew how. Well, it like uh, most of our wars are, you know, it was totally unexpected, and I—I uh, I live by the creed that we have the best military in the world. And we are, we will, and I think we will continue to be, from a military standpoint, the first responders. And uh, I don't think we should look at ourselves as world police by any stretch of the imagination. But we know when duty calls, and uh, it's, I would think, for a commander-in-chief... And all the stars that are involved with it, that they know they have the best people in the world, that when they're asked, they'll do. And uh, this has even been proven in the pandemic when uh, um, some of our military leaders, uh, like General Dix and others, that have been called back into service to do their specialty uh, in in uh, Richard's uh, case, it's uh, logistics, and uh, there was no one better than to look at what we had in the military and uh, 
even though he was retired, they called him back up. And, uh, you know, it's just been, well, the bottom line, and, and I get emotional about it, and I get very upset about anybody that we are the best country in the world, and we have the best people in the world. And just like you said, if if duty called, we all raised our right hand, and I don't think I've talked to a veteran one that wouldn't react exactly like you did. That if I'm called, I go back in. Uh, I might be pushing a, a walker, but I'll be back in, you know. And uh, I think this is the way the the country is, and that's why it is so great. And anybody that doesn't think so should be sent to the army for about six years you know <laughs> well i don't know about that dude but i would like if i may just to make a little statement about uh to all my brothers and sisters who served honorably whether in desert storm or before or after in conflict or in peace um in the in the guard reserve uh any any component uh any any branch if you are a veteran with a dd214 i would encourage you to uh take advantage of all the benefits that you've earned through your service from the va and uh if you suffered any injury or disability from your service I highly encourage you to to speak to a service officer. You can go to the Georgia Department of Veterans Service, or if you're from outside of Georgia, you can find out who in your state helps veterans. You can also call your your local chapter chapter of the Disabled American Veterans, ask to speak to a service officer about your benefits. Uh, you can, uh, in addition to the DAV, you can call the VFW, American Legion, any number of veteran organizations. They will absolutely help you. And, uh, and it's not welfare. It's something that you earned. It's not a handout. You earned it. Well, I can't address everybody. I can only, I was in, uh, both the National Guard and then, uh, when I moved to Atlanta, I would join, uh, army reserve and um you know at that time we we were pretty much not looked down upon but uh because so many units have been called up during the desert shield and desert storm and uh you know they have they have released some benefits which i personally don't feel like i deserve and um I don't even know what they are. I know that they've uh, given us, uh, given reservist uh, VA loans and uh, and uh, uh, recognize our service as uh, for VA loans and that type of thing. Uh, I don't know any other uh, things that we have necessarily gotten or necessarily deserve because I know how I feel about. The folks, when I went into the reserves, my brothers were going to Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I made my choice and they made theirs. And uh, I still miss some of the folks I knew that gave the, the ultimate. And so I I don't ever compare me to thee. As, but, you know... It, I do get sick when I hear the statistic that only 1% of the nation volunteers to serve. That's absurd. Uh, yeah. You know, I would never, I would never, uh, try to denigrate or tarnish the service of anybody who raised his hand and, you know, swore the oath, uh, you know, because you, you you put yourself up for the same thing, and you know we may have had a whole bunch of people in Vietnam, but you you know if uh, if things had gone bad in Europe or somewhere else, they would most certainly have called you. 
and they would not have asked your permission. <laughs> no, they have a good way of <laughs> getting your attention and, and not asking permission, don't they? They're very persuasive. Uh, you know, the and I've mentioned this. Oh, we're out of time. My goodness. Um, well, we'll... Phil, we'll just have to do this again, if that's all right with you, like next Monday, maybe. Yes, sir. And we'll continue it. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.